Part 2, Chapter 1, Section 3 of Some Do Not by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Part 2, Chapter 1, Section 3. And since she had acquired the habit of going into retreat with an Anglican sisterhood in order to annoy teachers who hated converts and considered that the communions should not mix, Sylvia had acquired also the habit of losing herself almost completely in reveries. Thus she was now vaguely conscious that a greyish lump, Tietjens, sat at the head of a whitish expanse, the lunch table. There were also books. Actually, she was seeing a quite different figure, and other books, the books of Glorvina's husband, for the great lady had received Sylvia in that statesman's library. Glorvina, who was the mother of two of Sylvia's absolutely most intimate friends, had sent for Sylvia. She wished, kindly and even wittily, to remonstrate with Sylvia because of her complete abstention from any patriotic activity. She offered Sylvia the address of a place in the city where she could buy wholesale and ready-made diapers for babies which Sylvia could present to some charity or other as being her own work. Sylvia said she would do nothing of the sort and Glorvina said she would present the idea to poor Mrs. Pilsenhauser. She, Glorvina, said she spent some time every day thinking out acts of patriotism for the distressed rich with foreign names, accents or antecedents. Glorvina was a fifty-ish lady with a pointed grey face and a hard aspect, but when she was inclined to be witty or to plead earnestly she had a kind manner. The room in which they were was over a Belgravia back garden. It was lit by a skylight, and the shadows from above deepened the lines of her face, accentuating the rather dusty grey of the hair, as well as both the hardness and the kind manner. This very much impressed Sylvia, who was used to seeing the lady by artificial light. She said, however, You don't suggest, Glorvina, that I'm the distressed rich with a foreign name. The great lady had said, My dear Sylvia, it isn't so much you as your husband. Your last exploit with the Esterhazys and the Metternichs has pretty well done for him. You forget that the present powers to be are not logical. Sylvia remembered that she had sprung up from her leather saddleback chair, exclaiming, You mean to say that those unspeakable swine think that I'm... Lovina said patiently, My dear Sylvia, I've already said it's not you. It's your husband that suffers. He appears to be too good a fellow to suffer. Mr. Waterhouse says so. I don't know him myself. Well, Sylvia remembered that she had said, And who in the world is Mr. Waterhouse? And hearing that Mr. Waterhouse was a late Liberal minister, had lost interest. She couldn't indeed remember any of the further words of her hostess as words. The sense of them had too much overwhelmed her. She stood now, looking at Tietjens, and only occasionally seeing him, her mind completely occupied with the effort to recapture Glorvina's own words in the desire for exactness. Usually she remembered conversations pretty well, but on this occasion her mad fury, her feeling of nausea, the pain of her own nails in her palms, an unrecoverable sequence of emotions had overwhelmed her. She looked at Tietjens now with a sort of gloating curiosity. How is it possible that the most honourable man she knew should be so overwhelmed by foul and baseless rumours? 
It made you suspect that honour had in itself a quality of the evil eye. Teachens, his face pallid, was fingering a piece of toast. He muttered, Met, met, it's met. He wiped his brow with a table napkin, looked at it with a start, threw it on the floor and pulled out a handkerchief. He muttered, Met, meta. His face illuminated itself like the face of a child listening at a shell. Sylvia screamed with a passion of hatred. For God's sake, say Metternich, you're driving me mad. When she looked at him again, his face had cleared and he was walking quickly to the telephone in the corner of the room. He asked her to excuse him and gave a number at Ealing. He said after a moment, Mrs. Wannup, oh, my wife has just reminded me that Metternich was the evil genius of the Congress of Vienna. He said, yes, yes, and listened. After a time, he said, Oh, you could put it stronger than that. You could put it that the Tory determination to ruin Napoleon at all costs was one of those pieces of party imbecility that, etc. Yes, Castlereagh. And, of course, Wellington. I I'm very sorry. I must ring off. Yes, tomorrow at 8.30 from Waterloo. No, I shan't be seeing her again. No, she's made a mistake. Yes, give her my love. Goodbye. He was reversing the earpiece to hang it up, but a high-pitched series of yelps from the instrument forced it back to his ear. Oh, war babies, he exclaimed. I've already sent the statistics off to you. No, there isn't a marked increase of the illegitimacy rate, except in patches. The rate's appallingly high in the lowlands of Scotland, but it always is appallingly high there. He laughed and said good-naturedly, Oh, you're an old journalist. You won't let fifty quid go for that. He was breaking off, but... Oh, he suddenly exclaimed, here's another idea for you. The rate's about the same, probably because of this. Half the fellows who go out to France are reckless, because it's the last chance as they see it. But the other half are made twice as conscientious. A decent Tommy thinks twice about leaving his girl in trouble just before he's killed. The divorce statistics are up, of course, because people will chance making new starts within the law. Thanks. Thanks. He hung up the earpiece. Listening to that conversation had extraordinarily cleared Sylvia's mind, she said, almost sorrowfully. I suppose that's why you don't seduce that girl. And she knew. She had known at once from the suddenly changed inflection of Teachin's voice when he had said, a decent Tommy thinks twice before leaving his girl in trouble, that Teachin's himself had thought twice. She looked at him now, almost incredulously, but with great coolness. Why shouldn't he, she asked herself, give himself a little pleasure with his girl before going to almost certain death? She felt a real sharp pain at her heart, a poor wretch in such a devil of a hole. She had moved to a chair close beside the fireplace and now sat looking at him, leaning interestedly forward as if at a garden party she had been finding pile impossible, a pastoral play not so badly produced. Teachens was a fabulous monster. He was a fabulous monster not because he was honourable and virtuous. She had known several very honourable and very virtuous men. If she had never known an honourable or virtuous woman except among her French or Austrian friends, that was no doubt because virtuous and honourable women did not amuse her or because, except just for the French and Austrians, they were not Roman Catholics. But the honourable and virtuous men she had known had usually prospered and been respected. 
They weren't the great fortunes, but they were well offish, well spoken of, of the country gentleman type. Teachings. She arranged her thoughts. To get one point settled in her mind, she asked, What really happened to you in France? What is really the matter with your memory, or your brain, is it? He said carefully, It's half of it, an irregular piece of it, dead, or rather pale, without a proper blood supply. So a great portion of it, in the shape of memory, has gone. She said, But you, without a brain. As this was not a question, he did not answer. His going at once to the telephone, as soon as he was in possession of the name Metternich, had at last convinced her that he had not been, for the last four months, acting hypochondriacal or merely lying to obtain sympathy or extended sick leave. Amongst Sylvia's friends, a wangle known as Shellshock was cynically laughed at and quite approved of. Quite decent and, as far as she knew, quite brave menfolk of her women, would openly boast that when they had had enough of it over there, they would wangle a little leave or get a little leave extended by simulating this purely nominal disease. And in the general carnival of lying, lechery, drink and howling that this affair was, to pretend to a little shell-shock had seemed to her to be almost virtuous. At any rate, if a man passed his time at garden parties, or, as for the last month's teachings had done, passed his time in a tin hut amongst dust-heaps, going to tea every afternoon in order to help Mrs. Wannop with her newspaper articles, when men were so engaged they were at least not trying to kill each other. She said now, do you mind telling me what actually happened to you? He said, I don't know that I can very well. Something burst or exploded is probably the right word, near me, in the dark. I expect you'd rather not hear about it. I want to, Sylvia said. He said, the point about it is that I don't know what happened and I don't remember what I did. There are three weeks of my life dead. What I remember is being in a CCS and not being able to remember my own name. You mean that, Sylvia said. It's not just a way of talking. No, it's not just a way of talking, Teachens answered. I lay in bed in the CCS. Your friends were dropping bombs on it. You might not call them my friends, Sylvia said. Teachin said, I beg your pardon. One gets into a loose way of speaking. The poor bloody Huns, then, were dropping bombs from aeroplanes on the hospital huts. I'm not suggesting they knew it was a CCS. It was no doubt just carelessness. You needn't spare the Germans for me, Sylvia said. You needn't spare any man who has killed another man. I was then dreadfully worried, Teachens went on. I was composing a preference for a book on Arminianism. You haven't written a book, Sylvia exclaimed eagerly, because she thought that if Teachens took to writing a book, there might be a way of his earning a living. Many people had told her that he ought to write a book. No, I hadn't written a book, Teachens said, and I didn't know what Arminianism was. You know perfectly well what the Arminian heresy is, Sylvia said sharply. You explained it all to me years ago. Yes, Teachens exclaimed, years ago I could have, but I couldn't then. I could now, but I was a little worried about it then. It's a little awkward to write a preface about a subject of which you know nothing. But it didn't seem to me to be discreditable in an army sense. Still, it worried me dreadfully not to know my own name. I lay and worried and worried and thought how discreditable it would appear if a nurse came along and asked me, and I didn't know. 
Of course, my name was on a luggage label tied to my collar, but I'd forgotten they did that to casualties. Then a lot of people carried pieces of a nurse down the hut. The German bombs had done that, of course. They were still dropping about the place. But good heaven, Sylvia cried out, do you mean they carried a dead nurse past you? The poor dear wasn't dead, Tietjen said. I wish she had been. Her name was Beatrice Carmichael, the first name I learned after my collapse. She's dead now, of course. That seemed to wake up a fellow on the other side of the room with a lot of blood coming through the bandages on his head. He rolled out of his bed and, without a word, walked across the hut and began to strangle me. But this isn't believable, Sylvia said. I'm sorry, but I can't believe it. You were an officer. They couldn't have carried a wounded nurse under your nose. They must have known your sister Caroline was a nurse and was killed. Carrie, Teachin said, was drowned on a hospital ship. I thank God I didn't have to connect the other girl with her. But you don't suppose that in addition to one's name, rank, unit and date of admission, they'd put that I'd lost a sister and two brothers in action and a father of a broken heart, I dare say. But you only lost one brother, Sylvia said. I went into mourning for him and your sister. No, two, Teachin said. But the fellow who was strangling me was what I wanted to tell you about. He let out a number of ear-piercing shrieks and lots of orderlies came and pulled him off me and sat all over him. Then he began to shout, Faith! He shouted, Faith! 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 at intervals of two seconds and as far as I could tell by my pulse until four in the morning when he died. I don't know whether it was a religious exhortation or a woman's name, but I disliked him a good deal because he started my tortures such as they were. There had been a girl I knew called Faith, oh, not a love affair, the daughter of my father's head gardener, a Scotsman. The point is that every time he said Faith, I asked myself, Faith? Faith what? I couldn't remember the name of my father's head gardener. Sylvia, who was thinking of other things, asked, What was the name? Teachens answered, I don't know. I don't know to this day. The point is that when I knew that I didn't know that name, I was as ignorant, as uninstructed as a newborn babe, and much more worried about it. The Koran says, I've got as far as K in my reading of the Encyclopaedia Britannica every afternoon at Mrs. Wanup's. The strong man when smitten is smitten in his pride. Of course, I got King's Regs and the MML and infantry field training and all the ACIs to date by heart very quickly, and that's all a British officer is really encouraged to know. Oh, Christopher, Sylvia said, you read that encyclopaedia? It's pitiful. You used to despise it so. That's what's meant by smitten in his pride, Teachin said. Of course, what I read or hear now I remember, but I haven't got to M, much less V. That was why I was worried about Metternich and the Congress of Vienna. I try to remember things on my own, but I haven't yet done so. You see, it's as if a certain area of my brain has been wiped white. Occasionally one name suggests another. You noticed when I got to Metternich it suggested Castlereagh and Wellington and even other names. But that's what the Department of Statistics will get me on when they fire me out. The real reason will be that I've served but they'll pretend it's because I've no more general knowledge than is to be found in the encyclopaedia, or two-thirds, or more, or less, according to the duration of the war. Or, of course, the real reason will be that I won't fake statistics to dish the French with. They asked me to the other day as a holiday task, and when I refused, you should have seen their faces. 
Have you really, Sylvia asked, lost two brothers in action? Yes, Teachens answered, Curly and Longshanks. You never saw them because they were always in India. They weren't noticeable. Two, Sylvia said. I only wrote to your father about one called Edward and your sister Caroline in the same letter. Carrie wasn't noticeable either, Teachens said. She did charity organisation, society work. But I remember you didn't like her. She was the born old maid. Christopher, Sylvia asked, do you still think your mother died of a broken heart because I left you? Deachin said, good God, no, I never thought so, and I don't think so. I know she didn't. Then, Sylvia exclaimed, she died of a broken heart because I came back. There's no good protesting that you don't think so. I remember your face when you opened the telegram at Lobsheed. Miss Wannop forwarded it from Rye. I remember the postmark. She was born to do me ill. The moment you got it, I could see you thinking that you must conceal from me that you thought it was because of me she died. I could see you wondering if it wouldn't be practicable to conceal from me that she was dead. You couldn't, of course, do that, because you remember we were to have gone to Bicebarden and show ourselves, and we couldn't do that because we should have to be in mourning. So you took me to Russia to get out of taking me to the funeral. I took you to Russia, Teachin said, I remember it all now, because I had an order from Sir Robert Ingleby to attend the British Consul General in preparing a Blue Book statistical table of the government of Kiev. It appeared to be the most industrially promising region in the world in those days. It isn't now, naturally. I shall never see back a penny of the money I put into it. I thought I was clever in those days. And of course, yes, the money was my mother's settlement. It comes back. Yes, of course. Did you, Sylvia asked, get out of taking me to your mother's funeral because you thought I should defile your mother's corpse by my presence? Or because you were afraid that in the presence of your mother's body you wouldn't be able to conceal from me that you thought I killed her? Don't deny it. And don't get out of it by saying that you can't remember those days. You're remembering now that I killed your mother, that Miss Wannop sent the telegram. Why don't you score it against her that she sent the news? Oh, good God, why don't you score it against yourself as the wrath of the Almighty that your mother was dying while you and that girl were crudling over each other, at Rye, whilst I was at Lobsheed? Deachins wiped his brow with his handkerchief. Well, let's drop that, Sylvia said. God knows I've no right to put a spoke in that girl's wheel or in yours. If you love each other, you've a right to happiness, and I dare say she'll make you happy. I can't divorce you, being Catholic, but I won't make it difficult for you otherwise, and self-contained people like you and her will manage somehow. You'll have learned the way from McMaster and his mistress. But, oh, Christopher Teachens, have you ever considered how foully you've used me? Teachens looked at her attentively, as if with magpie anguish. If, Sylvia went on, with her denunciation, you had once in our lives said to me, you whore, you bitch, you killed my mother, may you rot in hell for it, if you'd only once said something like it about the child, about Perone, you might have done something to bring us together. Teachin said, that's of course true. I know, Sylvia said, you can't help it, but when in your famous county family pride, though a youngest son, you say to yourself, and I dare say if, oh Christ, you're shot in the trenches, you'll say it, oh, between the saddle and the ground, that you never did a dishonourable action, and mind you, I believe that no other man save one has ever had more right to say it than you, Teachin said, you believe that. As I hope to stand before my Redeemer, Sylvia said, I believe it. 
but in the name of the Almighty, how could any woman live beside you and be forever forgiven? Or no, not forgiven, ignored. Well, be proud when you die because of your honour. But God, you be humble about your errors in judgment. You know what it is to ride a horse for miles with too tight a curb chain and its tongue cut almost in half. You remember the groom your father had who had the trick of turning the hunters out like that. And you horsewhipped him, and you've told me you've almost cried ever so often afterwards for thinking of that mare's mouth. Well, think of this mare's mouth sometimes. You've ridden me like that for seven years. She stopped and then went on again. Don't you know, Christopher Titchens, that there is only one man from whom a woman could take, neither I condemn thee, and not hate him more than she hates the fiend? Titchens so looked at her that he contrived to hold her attention. I'd like you to let me ask you, he said, how I could throw stones at you. I've never disapproved of your actions. Her hands dropped dispiritedly to her sides. Oh, Christopher, she said, don't carry on that old play acting. I shall never see you again very likely to speak to. You'll sleep with the one-up girl tonight. You're going out to be killed tomorrow. Let's be straight for the next ten minutes or so and give me your attention. The one-up girl can spare that much if she's to have all the rest. She could see that he was giving her his whole mind. As you said just now, he exclaimed solely, as I hope to meet my Redeemer, I believe you to be a good woman, one that never did a dishonourable thing. She recoiled a little in her chair. Then, she said, you're the wicked man I've always made believe to think you, though I didn't. Teacher said, no, let me try to put it to you as I see it. She exclaimed, No! I've been a wicked woman. I have ruined you. I am not going to listen to you. He said, I dare say you have ruined me. That's nothing to me. I am completely indifferent. She cried out, Oh, ho, ho, on a note of agony. Tichin said doggedly, I don't care. I can't help it. Those are, those should be, the conditions of life amongst decent people. When our next war comes, I hope it will be fought out under those conditions. Let us, for God's sake, talk of the gallant enemy, always. We have got to plunder the French, or millions of our people must starve. They have got to resist us successfully, or be wiped out. It's the same with you and me. She exclaimed, You mean to say that you don't think I was wicked when I, when I trepanned, is what Mother calls it? He said loudly, No! You had been let in for it by some brute. I have always held that a woman who has been let down by one man has the right, has the duty for the sake of her child, to let down a man. It becomes woman against man, against one man. I happened to be that one man. It was the will of God. But you were within your rights. I will never go back on that. Nothing will make me, ever. She said, and the others? And Perone? I know you'll say that anyone is justified in doing anything as long as they are open enough about it, but it killed your mother. Do you disapprove of my having killed your mother? Or you consider that I have corrupted the child? Teacher said, I don't. I want to speak to you about that. She exclaimed, you don't? He said calmly, you know I don't. While I was certain that I was going to be here to keep him straight and an Anglican, I fought your influence over him. I am obliged to you for having brought up of yourself the consideration that I may be killed and that I am ruined. I am. I could not raise a hundred pounds between now and tomorrow. I am, therefore, obviously not the man to have sole charge of the heir of Groby. 
Sylvia was saying, every penny I have is at your disposal, when the maid, Hollow Central, marched up to her master and placed a card in his hand. He said, tell him to wait five minutes in the drawing room. Sylvia said, who is it? Deachins answered, a man. Let's get this settled. I've never thought you corrupted the boy. You tried to teach him to tell white lies on perfectly straight papist lines. I have no objection to papists and no objection to white lies for papists. You told him once to put a frog in Marchant's bath. I've no objection to a boy's putting a frog in his nurse's bath as such, but Marchant is an old woman, and the heir to Groby should respect old women always, and old family servants in particular. It hasn't perhaps struck you that the boy is heir to Groby? Sylvia said, if, if your second brother is killed, but your eldest brother... He, Teachin said, has got a French woman near Euston Station. He's lived with her for over 15 years of afternoons when there were no race meetings. She'll never let him marry, and she's past the childbearing stage, so there's no one else. Sylvia said, You mean that I may bring the child up as a Catholic? Teachin said, A Roman Catholic. You'll teach him, please, to use that term before myself if I ever see him again. Sylvia said, Oh, thank God that he has softened your heart. This will take the curse off this house. Teachin shook his head. I think not, he said. Off you, perhaps. Off Groby, very likely. It was perhaps time that there should be a papist owner of Groby again. You've read Spelden on sacrilege about Groby? She said, yes. The first teacher who came over with Dutch William the swine was pretty bad to the papist owners. He was a tough Dutchman, Teachin said, but let us get on. There's enough time, but not too much. I've got this man to see. Who is he? Sylvia asked. Teachin's was collecting his thoughts. My dear, he said, you'll permit me to call you my dear. We're old enemies enough and we're talking about the future of our child. Sylvia said, you said our child, not the child. Teachin said with a great deal of concern, you will forgive me for bringing it up. You might prefer to think he was Drake's child. He can't be. It would be outside the course of nature. I'm as poor as I am because, forgive me, I've spent a great deal of money on tracing the movements of you and Drake before our marriage. And if it's a relief to you to know? It is, Sylvia said. I, I've always been too beastly shy to put the matter before a specialist or even before mother. And we women are so ignorant. Teachin said, I know. I know you were too shy even to think about it yourself. Hard. He went into months and days. Then he continued, but it would have made no difference. A child born in wedlock is by law the father's, and if a man who's a gentleman suffers the begetting of his child, he must in decency take the consequences. The woman and the child must come before the man, be he who he may. And worse begotten children than ours have inherited statelier names. And I love the little beggar with all my heart and with all my soul from the first minute I saw him. That may be the secret clue, or it may be sheer sentimentality. So I fought your influence because it was papist while I was a whole man. But I'm not a whole man any more, and the evil eye that is on me might transfer itself to him. He stopped and said, For I must to the greenwood go, alone a banished man, but have him well protected against the evil eye. Oh, Christopher, she said, it's true I've not been a bad woman to the child, and I never will be, and I will keep Marchant with him till she dies. You'll tell her not to interfere with his religious instruction, and she won't. Teachin said with a friendly weariness, that's right, and you'll have father, father, 
the priest that was with us for a fortnight before he was born to give him his teachings. He was the best man I ever met and one of the most intelligent. It's been a great comfort to me to think of the boy as in his hand. Sylvia stood up, her eyes blazing out of a pallid face of stone. Father Consett, she said, was hung on the day they shot Casement. They dare not put it into the papers because he was a priest and all the witnesses, Ulster witnesses. And yet I may not say that this is an accursed war. Teachin shook his head with the slow heaviness of an aged man. You may for me, he said. You might ring the bell, will you? Don't go away. He sat with the blue gloom of that enclosed space all over him, lumped heavily in his chair. Spelled a non-sacrilege, he said, may be right, after all. You'd say so from the Teachenses. There's not been a Teachen since the first Lord Justice cheated the Papist lounges out of Groby but died of a broken neck or of a broken heart. For all the 15,000 acres of good farming land and iron land and for all the heather on the top of it. What's the quotation? Be ye something as something and something and ye shall not escape. What is it? Calumny, Sylvia said. She spoke with intense bitterness. Chaste as ice and cold as, as you are. Teachin said, yes, yes. And mind you, none of the Teachins were ever soft, not one. They had reason for their broken hearts. Take my poor father, Sylvia said, don't. Both my brothers were killed in Indian regiments on the same day and not a mile apart, and my sister in the same week, out at sea and not so far from them. Unnoticeable people, but one can be fond of unnoticeable people. Hollow Central was at the door. Deachins told her to ask Lord Port Scatho to step down. You must, of course, know these details, Teachin said, as the mother to my father's heir. My father got the three notifications on the same day. It was enough to break his heart. He only lived a month. I saw him. Sylvia screamed piercingly, Stop! 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 She clutched at the mantelpiece to hold herself up. Your father died of a broken heart, she said, because your brother's best friend, Ruggles, told him you were a squit who lived on women's money and had got the daughter of his oldest friend with child. Teachin said, Oh, ah, yes. I suspected that. I knew it, really. I suppose the poor dear knows better now. Or perhaps he doesn't. It doesn't matter. End of part two, chapter one, section three.